In this session, we're going to talk about managing micro multiplication while confronting network tensions. Managing micro multiplication while confronting network changes. There's two issues here. One, we've got to manage the multiplication, uh, control what's going on, maybe more than we think we do. And then there are going to be tensions which will arise, and we're going to try to address both of those. First is, I want to talk about managing the rate of multiplication. If you go too fast, you're going to lose people. If you go too slow, it's going to cost you momentum. I and mean, that's just common sense. The fear that I have as I'm addressing you is that you go too fast. You know, everything that we've talked about in this leading up to this point is about inculcating the concept of multiplication in the fiber of our church and helping the people to come alongside us and to embrace us. In fact, we talked about this before, to help them help you invent what you're going to do. And so you really have to be very deliberate about this thing. You don't want to go too slow, on the other hand, or not much is going to happen. You're going to run out of steam. What you're really looking for here in terms of momentum are a few quick wins and low-hanging fruit, I like to call it. And you're going to probably find this, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, in the power of positive deviance. You want to look for these people who are deviations from the norm, and they're succeeding, and then build off of them. But then there are other people who are really, really ready to do this. They just don't know that they are. And if you can get them moving, then you can gather everybody else to kind of get in the flow and go with the momentum that you gain. <clears throat> Again, not too fast and not too slow. As we get into tensions here and managing them, cultural ecclesiology impedes multiplication. What do I mean by that? Well, most people have a, a, a mindset or a worldview about the church that either comes from the outside culture that they've been a part of, or a, a church that they were part of before they were part of yours. And if you're in the South, this is very important because uh, culture seems to dictate what we think of as church. But recent history, in terms of the last four or 500 years, has turned church into uh, sitting in rows and one guy talking, everything being centered on that one individual. And we need to really revamp that, rethink that. What we need is a biblical understanding of what is a church. And so I'm thinking you got to go into the Greek. Uh, you got to talk about uh, the word ekklesia and what that means. I think you need to correct the clergy laity perceptions that do exist in your church. And no matter how much in my life I've railed against this and taught against this, there's always because you stand on a platform with a microphone strapped around your neck. Um, and there's a tendency to put you up on a pedestal, and you just have to work really hard at overcoming that. I do that in a lot of ways. One is sharing the pulpit. Another is coming down from the pulpit and talking from the flat floor. But the most significant is to get in again to the Greek and define the words kleros and laos, which basically just mean people, and talk about spiritual gifts, um, the equality of importance of spiritual gifts, I love to go to uh, Romans 12. I love 1 Corinthians 12 on these issues. And then to talk about the fact that, that a microchurch is a church. And here I'm going to go to Acts chapter 2 
and start to look at the functions of a church. If we're accomplishing the functions, then we have to call the form a church. As we get into a little bit further in the tensions that have to do with the networking church. Now I'm talking about the launching church, the church that you're leading if you're watching this. And uh, the, the first is just restructuring around a different center. This is a big deal. Uh, most of us have, have structured around program or we've structured around a Sunday morning event. And now you're talking about restructuring around a different center and the center is diffused, which makes it a little bit uh, different. Uh, you know, we've, we've gone through how to build it off of the Sunday morning deal, whatever you do on the weekend, and then diffuse it into the neighborhoods and wherever in the community. But you are diffusing it. You are moving it to a place that you're restructuring the church around a, a, a different paradigm, if you would. The, the, the center is, is a thought, an idea, more than it's a physical location. You're changing the scorecard from addition to multiplication. And that's going to unnerve some people because as soon as you start to send people out the door, while well, you're threatening the addition paradigm, we need to understand that we have to add one person at a time. We make disciples one at a time. But then if we make disciples into disciple makers, then we become multipliers. If we add Bible studies, that's a nice thing. If we multiply micro churches, that's a far better thing. But you're going to get a little pushback in this, and you got to realize that there are some tensions that are involved. And then there are financial and leadership costs that are going to probably slow you in the very beginning. They're, they cause an initial slowdown. What do I mean by this? Well, obviously, you're sending a tithing base out the door as soon as you begin to plant autonomous microchurches. This doesn't happen when you're doing microchurch network inside the church. It's when you begin to network outside the church, outside your principal location, that you're going to send dollars out in the form of tithers. And in many cases, you're going to send dollars out to support the budget to, to get somebody going. Once they uh, expand from micro to macro, they're probably going to need a little bit of help. And then you do lose leaders. I mean, again, we're talking about the autonomous microchurches here. Uh, there's a cost in terms of the leadership base, and most certainly there's a cost in terms of the, the base of those people who are very, very prone to evangelism, and that's your newest converts who are, you know, your newest disciples who are the most turned on. And then uh, there are some costs to the microchurch planters here. The first is time. It's going to take a little time out of your life, and um, you know you're going to have to have some turned on people, or they're just not going to give the time. But the second is a forced paradigm shift, and by this I mean a shift into Ephesians chapter four leadership, where the not only you're not doing everything, but the microchurch pastors are not doing everything, and that's really hard for a lot of people because they came up under a pastor centric model. Uh, we identify all the leaders in the church, uh, if they're paid anyway, as pastors, and we forget apostles, we forget prophets, we forget teachers. I'm not a pastor, and even in my microchurch, I'm not a pastor. I'm a, I'm a ringleader, if anything. I get everybody else to do the work of the ministry, because that's what Ephesians 4 tells me I'm supposed to do, and this can represent a very real cost to a person who is 
kind of focused on themselves as the leader, a high control individual, uh, maybe a, a person with a gift of serving who wants to kind of do everything. And, you know, that's there's tension there and you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to teach your way through that to get people to really come alongside you. And then the last big cost to the microchurch planter or the microchurch leader, however you want to define them, is what do you do with the kids? And, you know, we started out by uh, hiring babysitters for our microchurches in-house. And, uh, and, and then we got volunteers to do it. And then we started showing Disney movies. And then I figured out that it would be better if I brought my children who are old enough to do this with. Now, you know, if they're under two, it probably doesn't work so well. But once they're three years old, we just brought them into the microchurch. We um, involved them in the discussion. We let the discussion go on for a while. And then I turn to my son and I go, Carl, what do you think about what Uncle John just said here? Uh, interestingly, when we moved to Hawaii, Uncle John also moved to Hawaii. And Carl's first job that he got paid for was cutting out countertops. John was a building contractor. And Carl got to run a jigsaw, came home so proud. And then there was Uncle Terry, who was also in that microchurch. Terry had come to us from a Hindu cult. He was a Caucasian American. He and his wife were both up to their eyeballs in this cult. They found Jesus through someone in our church. Uh, we discipled them in our microchurch. And when we moved to Hawaii, they naturally came along with us. And Terry was into health foods and opened up a health food store in Hawaii for actually a chain of health food stores. He hired Carl as a stock boy. Uh, that's his first real consistent job. Now, what am I saying? Well, it pays off to include the children in the microchurch whenever possible. Here's what we notice. The kids who grew up, and there weren't a lot of them because a lot of pushback came over this. They wanted to do the Disney movies in most of our microchurches. But the, the microchurches that included children did not suffer the loss of young adults once they graduate from high school to the church. Our kids stuck. And in fact, what happened was they were in our microchurch. They got old enough, high school, junior high. Uh, we did it both at high school and junior high ages where they're running their own microchurches. And my kids have done missionary work. Uh, my son has been a pastor of a very large church. Uh, my daughter's on staff as exec pastor of a church right now. These are the kind of things you expect if you do the right things with the kids in the microchurch. Here are some temptations you're going to feel as a network leader. The first is the temptation to play Pope. I mean, just, you know, everybody gets on their soapbox. Everybody has control issues, including me. And there's this ten tendency for us to still be the center of everything. We're diffusing the ministry, but we're keeping ourselves at the center. Secondly, there is the weight of when do you pull the trigger? Now, what I mean by pull the trigger is when do you decide that somebody is ready to go out and do an autonomous microchurch? That's a big one. And there's, there's a weight of responsibility here because you don't want to be messing with people's lives too much. And then there's the weight of pulling the other kind of trigger, the really negative one, where you end up having to basically fire somebody and pull them out of a role that they might covet, but they're not really doing a really, really good job of it. And then there are peer perceptions. In my case, as soon as we began planting churches, people in our denomination thought we were trying to start another denomination. They all got mad at us. Uh, people in the local community were all upset because 
we weren't sending people to seminary and, and raising up pastors without the benefit of all of that. And, and it got pretty testy in some situations. You're just going to have to decide that you got thick skin and that you can weather these things, and it's just not going to be a problem. And then the last tension that you're going to feel, I have felt it from time to time. I still feel it. Actually, I feel it while I'm running these coaching platforms. And, and that's a problem of job-centered self-image that I, you know, gather my self-image and my self-esteem from how well my job is going. And, and, and once you begin to pass a lot of the ministry to other people, your job changes. Uh, you have less to do. The interesting thing is, as that really takes off and begins to work both in-house and, and autonomously, you become more valuable to those people at the same time that paradoxically, you might be becoming a little bit less valuable to yourself because you perceive that you're putting out a little bit less. You're just going to have to work smarter rather than work harder. I want to talk about form versus function and the tensions that come along with this. And I see three of these. One that uh, it trips up an awful lot of people is what I call fuzzy copies. You know, the whole deal that if, if I put a, a, a document in a photocopy machine and copy it, I get a very accurate reproduction. But if I put the reproduction in and copy that and then do that again and again and again, generation after generation after generation of copying a copy of a copy, uh, it get, the details get fuzzier. This is going to happen. This is going to happen inside of your church, in the microchurches, within the congregation. As people make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, they bring their own spiritual gifts, they bring their own talents, they bring their own quirks, they bring their own personalities, and everyone is a little different than the one that went before. And your job is to set the tone, to set a model, to set the original, and then you're going to have to put it with fuzzy copies because it's just going to happen. And oh, by the way, as soon as you start doing autonomous microchurches, outside the circle of your congregation. Uh, the problem is magnified about 10 times over, but the kingdom of God is expanding, and that's the thing that we're most interested in. The second tension that I see here in terms of, of form and function is that the form of the church, the, the, the church as we know it, or the church as you know it, as you begin to plant um, autonomous microchurches, they tend to have, in some situations, a shorter life cycle. You know, a person moves who's a principal leader to another town, and then the thing kind of um, slowly dies or collapses in on itself. But you know what? The average church in America has a 30-year lifespan. I mean, there are churches in India that can trace themselves to the Apostle Thomas. There are churches in Syria that can trace their origins to what Barnabas and Saul and those other guys were doing way back in Antioch. And the direct lineage, it, that, that's there. Some of these churches have existed for a couple thousand years as a viable congregation. But that's the exception. That's surely not the norm. And you're, you're going to have people complain and, and use it as a, a stumbling stone. They're going to, you know, we shouldn't be doing this because. But the truth is we should be doing this because we're going to penetrate so many different cultural groups. We're going to expand our footprint geographically. It's going to cost us way less money. 
you're going to end up in other countries. There are all kinds of good reasons for doing this. Along the way, you're going to have to put up with the fact that some, not all, some are going to go on wonderfully and well. Some are going to go from micro to macro and get huge. All, all of those things are important, but you are going to get some pushback over the short life cycle of some micro churches. And then uh, this idea of a traditional church, or what I heard somebody recently called multimodal. Now, we're hearing an awful lot, especially as we came out of COVID, uh, about hybrid church. Some are calling it digital church. Uh, they're, they're coupling the words physical and digital. Fidgetal to me sounds like somebody who's got a nervous tick or something, they're fidgeting. But um, either way, we need to be thinking a little bit differently than we have thought in the past. And, and, and when I heard the term multimodal, here's what I took away from it, is that you're, a, you're meeting in a physical location. You're doing microchurches that are meeting in a physical location. Uh, some of your microchurches for varying reasons, geography, uh, shut-ins, uh, older people who don't like to drive at night, uh, all of these are reasons for some microchurches going digital. We talked about this in the last session. But the part that everybody seems to be missing is the linking together of what are we doing physically, what are we doing digitally, and what are we doing in terms of multiplying ourselves? What are we doing in terms of disciples making disciples and discipling some of those people to be leaders who are reproducing our church or reproducing microchurches and going from there. And then I think we need to include that multimodal to me includes raising people up to be pastors from within the local church and then sending some of them to seminary. You know, I get this reputation of being anti-seminary. Uh, we think we can teach you how to be a pastor. A seminary or a Bible college can refine the education and expand on it. And so when I'm thinking about multimodal. I think that that's what we have to be thinking about in the future. We're going to do some teaching in the very near future uh, about uh, doing evangelism in a post-Christian world, about doing church in a post-Christian world, about the obstacles that we're going to face in a post-Christian world. The world has changed, and it's not just COVID, and it's not just that the church is shrinking. It's not just politics. It's all of the above and then some. Learn to be flexible. Learn to value flexibility more than almost any other trait in your character and you will prevail.